but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Surf. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. It is week 73 of the tennis season. How are you holding up? Your math is extraordinary. <laughs> How many weeks are in a year? 52. I know, I know. Uh, Except on a leap year, right? There's 53. Does that work? No. No, it's still 52? Uh, that's a, an extra day. Extra day. Okay. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's circle back on that one mm-hmm. after the recording. Well, since we last saw you... We saw the World Tour Finals crown a new champion, going from next-gen to now-gen, current-gen. Next-gen to real-gen. We saw the inaugural version of the new Davis Cup, which has been getting summarily roasted on tennis Twitter, but it's only on day two. There are all these new countries that are playing in the Davis Cup, apparently. Apparently, dog is a country. What? And... (laughs) You know how countries are abbreviated in an acronym? The three letters. Three letters. Yeah. One of them is dog. One of them has like seven letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get to that a little later. But the uh, the digital profile of Davis Cup is having some problems. We're not here to talk about Davis Cup. No. So, I'm, I mean, it's nowhere on the agenda. I'm not even sure why oh, I added you mentioned it. it. I added it. Okay. But point taken. Let's get into the substance of the episode. No more preamble. Stefano Tsitsipas won the World Tour Finals, the Nitto ATP Finals. He was the winner of the Next Gen Finals last year, has soared through the rankings. His, uh, his come-up has been quite brief, actually. He had a surprising and excellent 2018, started the year at number 15, and it's been mostly upside all year. He had that big breakout run in Toronto last year where he eventually lost to Nadal in the final. You remember that? Yep. And since then, it's been mostly uptick. He's had some regressive moments, but whatever fatigue we thought he was going through at the end of the hardcourt season, he's been able to rejuvenate himself and play some sparkling tennis in London. He lost only one match, and even in that match, it was a dead rubber for him. He'd already qualified for the semifinals, but still took the opening set from Nadal and played three tough sets. Uh, Tennis media is very, very tough, right? Because this guy started the year at 15, is only 21 years old, had a run of impressive results, and then lost in the first round at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. A disappointment to be sure, but in a sort of forest for the trees sense, I don't know how you could see any portion of this year as a disappointment. He played a lot. He wasn't successful at every tournament. He mentioned feeling tired mentally and physically in Cincinnati through New York. But looking back at the year as a whole, uh, a few people jumped the gun there. This wasn't a Jack Sock winning Paris two years ago. It wasn't even a Dimitrov winning the Tour Finals two years ago, where you could make the argument that it was a depleted field. And, you know, well, there's potentially a little bit of an asterisk beside the person's name, that the achievement isn't as great. Like, this was outstanding from Stefanos. Right. He has beaten every member of the top 10 at least once this year. 
some multiple times. He beat Roger Federer twice, uh, once at the, the Australian Open, very notably, and that includes also a walkover in Rome. And then he beat him again in the semifinals here. Right. This is only his fourth title. Well, if you count next gen, it, this is actually the fifth, but his fourth ATP title, the previous three were all at 250s. He has two runner-up finishes at Masters 1000s, which one of those was in Toronto last year, and three runners-up at 500s. And he beat Dominic Team in the final. You could make the argument that the two best players at this tournament made the final, and they put on a heck of a show in that final. How did we get to that point, though? Mm-hmm. Because at this tournament, we still had Novak, who I think was the presumptive favorite for this tournament. We had Nadal playing the year in tournament. There was a lot of questions surrounding his participation because of the injury that forced his withdrawal from the Paris semifinals, uh, what, 10 days prior? Mm-hmm. With an abdominal injury. Those are, ugh, those are tricky, to say the least. Right affecting his serve most notably. And so we didn't know what would happen with him. He showed up, he looked to be in in pretty good nick, as it were, save for that first match, first match and a half. <laughs> well, claimed that the abdominal issue wasn't bothering him, that he wasn't in pain while he was serving, but it was a matter of getting matches and practice in. And then there was Federer, who came in fresh as well. Then you had the defending champion, Zverev, who was also on an upswing. Right. Beat Rafa right off the bat, I believe on day one. Day two. Or day two, sorry, the first day of that group. Yes. And you said before that Novak was a presumptive favorite, and I would have to agree. To me, the biggest surprise of the week was that Djokovic missed the semifinals. The elbow injury is back and is still very much an issue. And he mentioned that he was in pain during the Federer match, and he's not the type of player who invents injuries. And this elbow injury has been around for a while and seems to be rather difficult to manage. That being said, Roger Federer played a nearly flawless match against Djokovic in the last match of the round robin, which had huge impact. Federer beating Novak made it impossible for him to qualify for the semifinals, effectively handed Rafa Nadal the year-end number one, and it was Roger Federer's first win over Novak, I believe, in six matches. And that's dating back to... 2015. 2015. The World Tour Finals in 2015. All those things were at play riding on that match, sure. But before we got to that, Dominic Team burst out the gate, winning his first two matches. He beat Federer right out the gate in straight sets. Then, I mean, in just... An outstanding match, highly entertaining from both players. He takes out Djokovic in three sets before, with the dead rubber situation, losing to Berrettini in that third match. Mm. And evidently being sick, coughing a little bit, and probably wanting to preserve his health or what was left of it for the next few rounds. So at that point, Dominic Team is through, Berrettini is completely out, and so this last match of that stage of that round-robin stage in that group with Federer and Djokovic decides everything. On the other side, with Nadal's opening loss against Zverev in straight sets, it wasn't close at all. It was it was a it was a big loss, <laughs> to say the least. It, it was comprehensive. And Nadal afterward, when you're waiting for that press conference, you're wondering, well, 
is there any lingering issue with the abdominal stuff? And like you said, he said, no, everything was fine. He didn't feel any pain. He was able to serve as he wanted to. He just was not able to have the practice needed to perform at that level right off the bat. Mm-hmm. For Nadal, it was a case of, of stymied, interrupted momentum. We know that indoor hard courts are not his preferred surface. This myth that's been propagated in recent years that he's a bad fast court player or doesn't like fast courts, that's not true. Nadal himself says that that's not true. But it it does require a little bit more for him, especially at this stage of the season, having taken time off after the U.S. Open, after winning the U.S. Open, to then reset and get into the groove on the surface. And so having reached the semifinals in Paris, he was on his way. It, it looked like potentially this was a year that Nadal could go all the way or at least make the semis finals at the World Tour finals. But that withdrawal and that little injury put a spike in those plans. Mm-hmm. He played Medvedev in his second match, was down a set, won the second set, and then ended up being down 5-1 in the third set. It looked like his tournament was completely over. And then a combination of Nadal's never-say-die ruthlessness and Medvedev blinking contributed to Nadal coming back to win that third set in a tiebreak. And that really turned that group on its on its head because all sorts of scenarios then became a possibility. At that point, Medvedev, even though he'd lost two matches, was still with a shot, <laughs> in with a shot of making the semifinals. Yes, this had me consulting uh, the Nitto ATP Finals, their website, many, many times, trying to wrap my head around this. You know, the the rules, if there was a two-way tie between players, it would go win-loss record and then to their head-to-head. And then if there was a three-way tie, which is what we ended up getting, it would go percentage of sets won, then percentage of games won, and then all the way down to... Uh, who cares? It, it didn't come to it. <laughs> I can't even remember. But Nadal ended up handing Tsitsipas his only loss of the week, 7-5 in the third, and we had a scenario where there needed to be a tiebreaker. Nadal did his part. By that time, he had won two of his three matches, which was was good after how he started in that tournament to come back and beat Medvedev and then beat Tsitsipas, the eventual champion, was an achievement Mm -hmm. not to be scoffed at. What then became the scenario was the two deciding matches, Federer Djokovic, and then the next day, Medvedev Zverev. Because Zverev had beaten Nadal, even though Nadal beat Tsitsipas, and if Zverev had beaten Medvedev, they'd both have two wins. Zverev would go through because he had the head-to-head win against Nadal to start the group. So the only way that Nadal could go through to the semifinals, even though he won two matches, was for Medvedev to beat Zverev. And I thought that that would have been a, a situation that Medvedev would relish. He seems to me the type of player who enjoys putting a spoke in that wheel who will like to, to shift the wig a little bit. <laughs> right. Daniel just did not really have it this week. The You could say maybe that the long, successful season has caught up with him. He did pull out of Davis Cup the following week. It makes sense that this dude would run out of gas at some point. Right. What he'd done to even make 
the US Open final and to come back from two sets down to force a fifth set against Nadal in that US Open final was unreal to begin with. And then to to expect him to be able to carry that on even further into the fall swing was always going to be a big ask. Now in the other group, to me, this when I saw this group, I was like, okay, you know, we said Novak was probably the favorite in this tournament. Roger has an excellent chance, obviously, after winning it so many times, but this is extremely tough. And I'm not talking about Berrettini. I was talking about if either Djokovic or Federer have to face team and then a member of the, the big four, this is going to be damn near impossible. Like whoever comes out of this group could be really banged up by the round robin. And what we saw was that Dominic team got through Federer, played an outstanding match and a very competitive match against Djokovic. And Djokovic, shockingly, was the one to not come through. Because Federer beat him handily in straight sets. Right. And this this match from Roger was kind of crazy. Uh, it's a, a vintage Federer indoor performance. It was crisp and clean and punchy. He served 12 aces. He broke Novak four times. He only faced a single break point in the match. And then you get to the semifinals and you see kind of a different Roger. And this is what you have to expect from a 38-year-old legend, that your body is not going to be the same every day. I was surprised that in that matchup against Novak, he fared so well. There was nothing, even if Novak was injured and in a lot of pain with the elbow, that I figured there would have been something Novak could have done to get in Roger's head. And it, it just didn't happen. Roger handled the moment very well. I don't know if he knew his opponent was was suffering, but... He also prepared a lot for that match. Right. He told us that he went off-site to practice. He had an hour-long meeting with his team ahead of that match. Clearly strategized. We take for granted that these top guys, especially Federer, because he's seen to play so effortlessly and his success be so effortless... That there's not a lot of preparation and hard work that goes into it. But what he's telling us here is that his team actually put in a lot of hard work and preparation into this match. And it showed. He was able to execute on court what they had prepared for. And in his post-match comments, what I found exceedingly instructive was him saying how much beating Novak after four years was important to him at this stage of his career. Being 38, he's not out here to just be ceremonial. He still believes that he can win these big tournaments. And he gave the impression that if he can't feel that he can win these big tournaments, then what's the point? And so being able to to score this win four years after the last one was important to give him that belief that what he's doing is not in vain, that he can still go forward and probably propel him to have even more belief in 2020. So what do we have at the end of the week here? We have Tsitsipas putting his hand up, the next young winner of the ATP Finals after Alex Zverev, positioning himself as a threat at literally any tournament he enters now. The final with Dominic Team was so close that I don't think you can sort of nudge Stefanos ahead of Dominic in that, you know, in that conversation. For me, that's still a no. I've long maintained mm -hmm. that Dominic is still the presumptive next best, the, the, the presumptive heir 
Yes. You can't skip that generation just yet. I agree. Because Dominic yeah. is still making improvements. The tennis that he played against Djokovic was jaw-dropping. Mm-hmm. Novak himself was floored by the sustained, accurate power right. that team threw at him throughout that entire match. It was alarming in a good way. And I think, I hope this doesn't sound dumb, but I think you can make the argument that Dominic could be a Warinka-like figure. Somebody who can smack the absolute shit out of the ball and overpower all the best players on tour when he's accurate. So Warinka has done that at three majors against the best of the best. Why can't Dominic? They're not the same person, but Dominic is starting to master hard courts and faster surfaces like he has clay. To me, it's only a matter of time. It's a good comparison because like Stan, grass is his least favorite surface. Mm -hmm. He's had the least success on grass. They both have the one-handed backhand. They both generate incredible power on both wings if they need to. The part for Dominic that's that's heartening here is that this was also thought to be one of his least favorite surfaces, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's made progress on hard courts. Sure, he won Indian Wells, but that's a slower, grittier, more high bouncing hard court. Mm-hmm. This was a fast court, a fast indoor court, and he was able to do that against two of the goats. It was astonishingly good and an absolute move in the in an upward direction for him. The other thing that came out of this week, obviously, is Nadal finishing the year number one for the fifth time. This puts all of the big three with five year-end number ones each. Murray, in that same stretch, has one. He finished 2016 as number one. It's uh, always surprising to me that Roger Federer only has five because his, his stretch of dominance seemed so fulsome and it seemed so long when it was happening it was but then the rise of nadal led right into the rise of djokovic and they Mm. kind of alternated a lot over the last decade right 15 of the last 16 year and number ones have been those three guys each of them with five and like you said the only spoke in that 16 year wheel is andy moore in 2016 when Mm -hmm. he had that outstanding year capped with the olympic gold medal Right. And And what did it take for him to be the one to stop that run? It took him wrecking his body. He was never the same after that year. It took an absolutely Herculean effort at the end of 2016. Do you remember how much he played? And then Davis Cup, winning Davis Cup at the end of that season. It was, I mean, what he did that year, we've seen the offshoot of it Mm -hmm. on his body. Yeah. But look, Nadal is out here world number one again 11 yeah. years after the first time yeah the first one was 2008 then after 2010 he won and then what 2013 13 17. 17 and 19 yeah like this is a guy who we've been told our entire adult lives as tennis fans would not be here let alone be here at number one and i want to give all those pundits a little bit of a pass Because there was some sound logic behind that. And also, Nadal himself did not believe he would be here at this time. He did not think that his body would allow him to be here at number one. And so, while it's an easy target to swing after these pundits, it's there there was some sound reasoning behind it. It's it's a if you're a Nadal fan, it's a nice haha, 
prove it to you moment, you know, feel good about it. But you're doing the same thing to Nadal <laughs> at this point because right, right. it's all gravy for him now too at this point because he he himself did not expect it. All right, so that's a wrap on the ATP season. That is true. We have uh, two more episodes to go after this one, and they'll be our year-end recap episodes. The first one will be the WTA recap episode, and then likely the following week will be the ATP recap episode. But as far as the actual tennis, non-Davis Cup tennis, the men's tour is done. Right. Davis Cup is ITF, technically. So the ATP tour is finito. Cece Bellis is back. We talked about her a few episodes ago, how she had undergone all of these surgeries. Her career was in jeopardy for a while after a series of misdiagnoses, but she played a a challenger in Houston. Sorry, it was not a challenger. It's part of the WTA 125K series. So it is a step above the, uh, the challenger level. It had a decent field. It did. CC won three matches. She lost to the eventual champion Kirsten Flipkins from Belgium. And guess who else is back? Another C. Colleen. I'm gonna... Yes, so Colleen Vandeweghe is back. I Okay, I did not mean that, obviously. Okay. Wow. Colleen Vandeweghe is back. And honestly, I have softened a little bit about this. It is difficult to begrudge her because she has gone through a lot just an injury nightmare. She won the U.S. Open doubles with Ash Barty last year, but it seems like it's been a long time since she's been a factor in singles. Over a year. She was one half of one of the the brightest, greatest moments in my tennis fandom career. The 2017 Australian Open semifinal against Venus Williams. Absolutely. She will always have given me that. We also enshrined uh, Magdalena Rybarakova into the Body Surf Hall of Fame for beating Vandeweghe at Wimbledon. I believe was also in 2017. Mm -hmm. But Colleen is back, made the final, lost to Flipkins. It was, like you said, a pretty outstanding field for this time of year in Houston, which apparently was freezing. Taylor Townsend was there. Man, some of these tennis players were complaining that the temperatures were near or below freezing, which is not ideal for playing tennis. No, no. Yannick Sinner, remember him? From last week, he played a challenger in Ortizé, Italy, which is in his home region of South Tyrol, and won it. Did not drop a set, was clinical, backed up his next-gen win with more superb tennis. This is his third challenger title of the season. He's the second youngest player ever behind Gasquet to win three challengers in a season. So he's up to number 78 now, It's kind of icing on the cake after the next-gen finals. That is after he started the year outside the top 500. I think 553. You had an update for us on the India-Pakistan Davis Cup tie, which is still being discussed. Yeah, so Sudipta Ganguly, hugely popular surname in India because of the former Indian cricket captain and current, I believe, head of the BCCI, was just elected, Saurav Ganguly. Can you, what's the BCCI? the board of cricket control in india i believe something like that okay they're the head of indian cricket all this background info ganguly is if you hear the name ganguly you think cricket if you know anything that's all i'm saying but you're referring to the gentleman who wrote the story for reuters correct so dipto ganguly for reuters 
he tells us that the ITF rejected Pakistan's appeal because the ITF took India's suggestion that, hey, we think that this is not cool, it's not safe, we don't want to go to Pakistan to play this tie, and the ITF agreed. Pakistan, led by Aysamul Haq Qureshi, appealed this decision, and it was just decided that the ITF rejected that appeal from Pakistan. And since the tie is no longer going to be held in Pakistan officially, they've decided that the neutral site that they're going to hold this tie at I had speculated somewhere in the UAE because that's what they've been doing mm. with cricket. They've instead decided to hold this tie in Kazakhstan. As far as Qureshi is concerned, he said that the attitude towards Pakistan of both All Indian Tennis Association and the ITF is highly deplorable to say the least. Those were words he wrote in a letter to the Pakistan Tennis Federation chief Salim Saifullah Khan. He says that there is absolutely no threat foreseen for the Indian tennis team in Pakistan. He cited the fact that India and Pakistan signed a pact last month allowing Indian pilgrims to cross the border to a Sikh shrine in Pakistan, demonstrating rare cooperation between the nuclear-armed rivals at a time of tension and clashes elsewhere in their frontier. Those are Ganguly's words. Qureshi, though, cited the agreement, which introduced visa-free access from India to the Pakistani town of Kartapur, He says, if everyone else can come, including hundreds of other Indians, every day, then why can't a few members of the Indian tennis team visit Pakistan when Pakistan has assured them of extremely high levels of security protocol? However, if the ITF does not correct their wrong decision, then as protest against this unjust, unfair, and biased decision, I want to raise my voice and hereby announce not to participate in this tie if it takes place outside of Pakistan. This just means that the entire tie is going to be depleted all around. Because on the Indian side, Prajnesh Gunaswaran is already not going to play. He's getting married during that tie. While doubles player Rohan Bapana has already pulled out due to a shoulder injury. The last time an Indian Davis Cup team traveled to Pakistan was 1964. They defeated Pakistan 4 nothing, And Pakistan last traveled to India in 2006 losing 3-2. So this this was slated to happen on November 29th. It still remains to be seen if it will happen at all, if the entire Pakistani team will follow Qureshi and boycott. I don't know how much you all find this interesting. We do. And so it's this kind of <laughs> off-the-beaten-path tennis story that we've been following, but it, it's still developing, and we will bring you more if there's more. Uh, yeah. This past week, we saw the first big wave of momentous, monumental, um, meaningful retirements in tennis. Meaningful is bad. Anybody who retires, I don't want to diminish their careers, but we've been speculating for years now. When will we see this wave of retirements from top tennis players? A lot of the players at the upper echelons of the game are well into their 30s. The big speculation is that after Tokyo, the Olympics, we will see that in full force. Right. But for now, the two big names who've retired this past week, Dominika Sibulkova and Tomasz Berdyk. Sibulkova, one of one of the great personalities in tennis, for better or for worse. It's not always used for good. <laughs> but one of the most colorful players of the past 15, 20 years in women's tennis 
She has the skill of being able to tell which tennis ball she's holding blindfolded by smelling it. Really? You didn't see that? No, I did not. Yeah. They blindfolded her and put in front of her like three or four different tennis balls and she sniffed them and told them which one was which brand. (laughs) Speculation has been swirling around her retirement for quite a while. She won the WTA finals in 2016, beating Angelique Kerber in that final. She's won eight WTA titles. Her breakout really was that 2009 semifinal at Roland Garros. But she also had a runner-up finish at the Australian Open in 2014, losing to Li Na. Li Na, who had lost the previous final to Victoria Azarenka in 2013. Listen, she's had a great career. She reached number four as recently as early 2017, barely two and a half years ago. She's suffered from a lot of injuries. She has. And we've seen that from a lot of players who punch above their weight. Radvanska retired last year and... She was kind of in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Different player in that Dominica could blast the ball with the best of them. Just a, a a wildly different style of game. Yes. Dominica was, what, like 5-1, 5-2? Very small. But you can see her, she was a, a ball of muscle. She had incredible timing and somehow wrung sometimes shocking power out of out of her body. Outside of tennis... She is famous for elevator selfies. I would say it's safe to say she is the goat of tennis elevator selfies. Yes. Much imitated, never duplicated. I tried to imitate in Spain this year. She is a fashionista. She has... For better or worse. She has a stupidly hot husband. Mm -hmm. She's famous for her Slovak catchphrase, Pome, which she even branded. Put on clothes. Launched her own line. She's also infamous for her Wimbledon incident. Well, we covered that when it happened. Let's not uh, <laughs> let's not beat it to death. But as I said, a huge colorful personality, for better or for worse. And she was also able to score huge upset wins. Oh, yeah. She had something yeah. like near 40 top 10 wins in her career. She beat five number one players. If you had Sibolkova in your side of the draw earlier on... You were not happy. Right. That's got to be her biggest legacy going forward. Five years from now, we're going to remember her as someone who improbably won the WTA finals and who could face down literally anyone without fear. Tomas Berdych, this is a big one. You know, Berdych is one of those guys who had the misfortune of reaching his prime when Roger Federer and Nadal and Djokovic were doing the same, were dominating tennis. His, I mean, we talk about Sibulkova had eight quarterfinal or better finishes at slams. Berdych had 17. This guy was perennially top 10 or higher. He was a Wimbledon runner-up against Nadal in 2010. Won 13 titles on his own, which I, I'm surprised he didn't win more, honestly, mm-hmm. with the level of his talent. And Just I'm also- a, a pristine ball striker. I'm also surprised that he did not make more than one Grand Slam final Mm -hmm. because of his prodigious talent and ball striking skills. And that, unfortunately for him, will be one of the things that folks remember him for in a couple years is that he was probably, despite the era that he played in, a bit of an underachiever. Somebody who didn't always rise to the occasion when he could have. Okay. Will retire as one of the best. 
to never have won a slam. One yes. of the best to have played the game. But he does have those two Davis Cups, which is an, a, a really impressive addition to his resume over Spain in 2012 and what I view as a real stunner against Serbia in 2013. Serbia, who did have Novak Djokovic on their team, had excellent doubles players as well. And both of those were with Radek Stepanek. One of the things I will remember Berdik for is his on-court fashions. He took the road less traveled, signed with H&M, and for a good while there was delivering floral prints Ugh. upon prints on the tennis court. Gorgeous. Before his time. He's also known in some circles to have some of the best legs on mm -hmm. the tennis yep. court. That was never really one of my observations, but that's something that I've been told by a lot of but folks. But you can objectively see it. Objectively objectify him? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the Bryan brothers announced that they will definitely retire after the 2020 US Open, which at their age is not a huge surprise, but this is a is a huge moment in doubles. They're one of, if not the best, men's doubles team in history. They lead the number of titles, and this could set off a a major wave, mm -hmm. or or be the first kind of harbinger of what's to come after the U.S. Open. Because I don't think you know the Olympics are kind of the the marker. But if you're planning on retiring in 2020, you're probably going to play the U.S. Open, right? Meanwhile, I'm over here like Roger Federer, like, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Oh, I know. No, as in, like, I really don't care that they're retiring. I know that this is a oh, terrible wow. opinion to okay, have. Wow. And I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback. But I just, I just do not have the bandwidth to care about this so far in advance. <laughs> okay. I just don't. Fair enough. Fair I just enough. don't. Like, why are we going on this big farewell tour for this team like, well i mean to be fair if any doubles team is going to have a farewell tour mm. it's going to be brian brian or williams williams well right that is their right but for me they overstate their importance to the rest of the world outside of north america by doing this oh wow like, so we got this announcement get that inbox ready we got this announcement on twitter on tennis channel after the completion of one of the the days play at the world tour finals a major announcement coming, one of the Bryans made a video and said, tune in to Tennis Channel in like half an hour, we're on our way, we've got a big announcement. And for me, it's like, oh, they're retiring. And then it's like, oh, we're retiring in a year. <laughs> like, no, no, you don't get to do that. I'm sorry. I, I, okay. I, which is bad of me because the one thing I do feel bad about is that I don't want this to demean the esteem that I have for doubles. Doubles is important. Right. right. But... I just, I don't, again, I do not have the bandwidth. Okay. We'll talk more about Bob and Mike in September 2020. How mm -hmm. about that? It might give us enough time to try and tell them apart. It probably won't. You know, I'm really, I'm really bad at the right and left thing. I, I've just barely wrapped my head around uh, Carolina and Christina. That is not the same thing <laughs> at all. And that is still a blemish. It's a, it's a big embarrassment. And an embarrassment. It is a, a big shame in my life, but it, it's fine. You're like, which one is Carolina? The righty or the lefty? She's a lefty, right? <laughs> Carolina is a lefty? That was at least two years ago. <laughs> and two years ago, you had already had a tennis podcast for three years. Um, okay. I, I take your point. Anyway, Kiki Mladenovic has had 
quite uh, a few weeks, I would say. As has Dominic Team. Well, listen, there's more. Kiki and Dominic have reportedly split up. They've ended their relationship. At first, I... The news hit me. Uh, Your response was had, how I felt about the Brian's And I thing. had literally nothing to say. I had no comment. I was like, okay. And now you're no. all tore up? No. No, I I don't know. It, it's, it's what it is. So it's the same for you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in, in the same 30-day stretch, right, Kiki and Sasha Bayan split up. Mm-hmm. Kiki and Dominic team split up. And Ms. Mademoiselle Mladenovic... Her tennis has not suffered. She soared on Air France to the to the Fed Cup final. Okay, so within a few weeks, she wins the WTA finals in doubles with her partner Tamea Babos. She wins Fed Cup for France, or or assists hugely in their win in both singles and doubles. Breaks she got up three with, points. Well, yeah, all, I mean, massive. all three points. You could argue that Kiki won Fed Cup. Yes, splits with Dominic. Dominic had a great week at the World Tour Finals. I don't know if it's amicable or what, or like who's getting the dog. I don't know if there's a dog. Is there a dog? I don't think there's a dog. <laughs> there's a, Who gets the Instagram account? Does Dominic still get to hang out with Kiki's brother? Mm, that's a good question. Do the photos stay up? So far they have. Sasha Bayan, he has told us that he has a new phase of his tennis coaching life coming, and we are to stay tuned as to who will be his next pupil. Mm-hmm. That's coming shortly, apparently. Okay. Maybe he's getting back together with Kiki. Yeah, I, I kind of doubt that. I know you said we weren't going to talk about Davis Cup, but I did have to drop in that Alizé Cornet roasted the hell out of Gerard Piquet, like the rest of us. She's just out here having fun. She <laughs> poked fun at the opening ceremony and says, well, clearly you haven't been to a lot of Davis Cup matches because that's not what that is. I believe her exact words were, that ain't it, chief. I I do not have the bandwidth to get into this whole... Fine, fine, we won't. ...Davis Cup we thing won't. and people complaining about it. It's too late in the season. Thanksgiving is next week. It's true. It is too late. All right, so we're just going to act like Davis Cup doesn't exist? For now. Okay, okay. But we can tell you that Sanya Mirza will be back in January. Sanya had a baby at some point. <laughs> This year, early this year, I don't know. I we probably been talked off, we talked about it on the show. We I'm did. Sure. She's been but, off the tour for a while. She's been training, getting back into shape, and she is coming back. Already has committed to a bunch of tournaments in January. All right. And who's standing in her way? Nobody, because she does what the fuck she wants. I promise y'all, we are not looking for dramatic readings. Dramatic readings seem to find us. And again, it's an Italian. Two weeks in a row. <laughs> it is. Silvio Berlusconi, I mean, uh, sorry, it's um, Ubaldo, Ubaldo Scanagatta, noted tennis journalist, founder, misogynist. Founder of Ubi Tennis. Oh, you just gave me that look like, girl, can you say that on this podcast? <laughs> I forgot what we were, and I'm, sorry. And I'm here like, well, the receipts are pl- are plenty. And uh, he, he stepped in it with Rafa again this week, and uh, it was a whopper. Typically... Ubaldo's interactions with the top players are a bit scattered, but jovial. There's there's joking going back and forth. Well, it fluctuates between them ribbing him and absolutely searing him. <laughs> there's this famous one where Rafa is distracted while he's being asked a question because he notices 
in his periphery that Ubaldo is sleeping in the press conference. And he goes, sorry, sorry, sorry. Do you see that? Ubaldo is sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here comes our dramatic reading. Please uh, don't take offense to our accents. It is not meant at all to mock. We're just trying to get into character. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tonight, you are playing very short many times. I don't know why, because you're not used to that. I'd like to know, for many people to get married is a very important distracted thing before the marriage, during the marriage, after the marriage. I'd like to know if somehow your concentration on tennis life has been a bit different even if you are going out with the same girl for many, many years. Honestly, are you you asking me this? Is it a serious question or is it a joke? Is it serious? It's serious. It is not something that uh, Spanish do. Okay, I'm surprised. It's it's a big surprise for you. You ask me this after I've been with the same girl for 15 years and having a very stable and normal life. Doesn't matter if you put a ring on your finger or not. In my personal way, I am a very normal guy. Maybe for you was how many years you have been with your wife? uh, 30 years this year. And before? Oh, uh, Um, um, maybe before you're not sure. That's why. Okay. Okay. We we moved to Spanish because that's bullshit. (laughs) Thank you very much. Rafa was simply not having it at all. Not having it. So the reporter was roasted all over the place and then released a blog defending his decision to ask this question. And to to be honest, I wasn't... I mean, the question was silly. It wasn't offensive to me. I can understand if people took offense to it, but it, it didn't rise to that level to me. I thought it was just silly. And clearly the reporter had something he wanted to say. Rather than being genuinely curious about the answer, it seemed that there was something he wanted to share. And then he did. In a blog. (laughs) You know, so I have to... uh, I don't want to get too serious about it. It was fun. I enjoyed it. We'll always have Rafa saying that's bullshit. (laughs) Like, that is is gold. We moved to Spanish because that's bullshit. No, the pause. We moved to Spanish because that's bullshit. (laughs) This next segment, it's not tennis stuff. Every now and then we we talk about something that interests us. This one happens to be still within the sporting world. It's a topic that we've stayed away from mostly publicly ourselves. But this week, the developments in the Colin Kaepernick situation were just so egregious that we feel compelled to opine. <laughs> so the NFL contacted Colin Kaepernick on November 12th, which was a Tuesday, inviting him to work out in front of scouts from the NFL teams. There are 32 teams in total. This is notable because, if you haven't been following the situation, Colin Kaepernick has been out of the NFL for a little over three years now, I believe, because he has been essentially iced out by the NFL. They've colluded to not have him be a quarterback on an active NFL roster because... At one point, he started kneeling during the national anthem to protest the treatment of African Americans in America, specifically at the hands of police across the nation. Right. The protest had a very simple premise. It was 
stop killing us, which you may have seen written on a wall in Beyonce's formation video, but it, it boils down to something very simple. Stop killing black people. This was enough to get Colin basically kicked out of the NFL as a, a firebrand, as someone who, as it's now being painted, is too much of a circus for any team to sustain a distraction. And these are the sort of the propaganda terms that the media who are beholden to the NFL propagate. Mm -hmm. The Stephen A. Smiths of the world. People who are dependent on NFL money and networks who are dependent on NFL money to sustain themselves. These, this league is run by rich, conservative, old, white men. Nearly universally across the board... Every NFL team is run this way. Right. So agree or disagree with Colin's message. He is good enough to play as a quarterback in the NFL. Well, we didn't. We were or, told we didn't know that for sure because it had been so long. Could he still play? But at the time that he was released, he was even even as a backup. Mm. If he is good enough to play as a second string quarterback, give him a job. Regardless Listen, of whether you agree with his protests, if you view it as a distraction, he, the NFL and Kaepernick settled a collusion lawsuit. Warren Moon was out here playing quarterback till he was 72 years old. <laughs> the NFL has a long history of decrepit, way past their expiry date, quarterbacks hanging around. If Colin Kaepernick were not wrapped up in this situation, he would be on an NFL right, team. right. But the issue here, all these these last few years, and why this situation pinged on my radar, why is the NFL offering him, apropos of nothing, this workout mm -hmm. at this time? It, it smelled fishy the entire time. Kaepernick, I'd imagine, would want to prove that he was still a viable quarterback option. My initial reaction was, why is the NFL giving him this opportunity? Mm -hmm. And why now? After settling exactly. that collusion lawsuit. And so they say, they tell him on a Tuesday, we're having this workout that you didn't ask for on Saturday. And he and his team is like, well, can we push it to a, the following Tuesday? Because coaches, the, the, the brass of the teams, the, the scouts, the scouts, the scouts are out checking out college football games on Saturdays. On Saturdays, yeah. a lot of the team, the personnel is traveling to another city to get ready for Sunday Sunday games. It's not an ideal time to get the people who you want to see you see you. Mm -hmm. And they're like, "No, it has to be Saturday." And then he's like, "Well, if it has to be Saturday, can it be like two Saturdays from now?" They're like, "No, it has to be now." Right. And then it then it really becomes like, "What is really going on here?" And so Kaepernick shows up, and then he's presented with this waiver. There were a few stipulations that were too much for the Kaepernick team, one of which was that Kaepernick's team would not be allowed to film, that there would be no independent filming of the, the workout, that the NFL would have complete control over what footage was released. So Kaepernick's team was worried that they would compile a, a tape of all the bad throws. Yeah, because right? if he had... 60 plays drawn up and he made 55 of those throws they'd maybe do up a, a, a video segment that has him missing those five plays and then maybe like four other not as impressive ones right the waiver they asked him to sign also prevented kaepernick from suing again regarding anything that took place at the workhouse or regarding anything that took place at the workout 
and it made clear that no second collusion case could go forward had he signed this waiver. It was much more narrow than the waivers that they ask other players to sign. But apparently the deal breaker with Kaepernick's attorney was actually the filming. That, w- that was the straw that broke the, cra- the camel's back. So the team drives to an Atlanta area high school around an hour from the Falcons practice site. And Kaepernick has his work out there, brings his own receivers. Uh, you know, some footage has circulated and he looked quite good. I mean, I'm not a, a football fan, but apparently he's in great shape. He's throwing the ball well. There were uh, reportedly like six to eight teams, representatives from six to eight teams present. And the NFL assures us that all 32 teams have been sent the footage from that that workout. Why would the NFL not want this process to be as transparent as possible? Can we answer that question? (laughs) Right, right, right. And uh, so Colin was interviewed after the workout and obviously throughout this whole thing. Since the kneeling started, he has had his message on point. He wasn't interviewed. He came out, there were people there, and he, like a boss, said his piece. Right. He was wearing a Kunta Kinte t-shirt, by the way. (laughs) Kunta Kinte, the character from Roots, who refused to adopt his slave name, Toby, Mm. and was whipped for it. Obviously a very pointed allusion there. And he said to the scouts, tell your owners to stop being scared. Basically, hire me. Stop running. But listen, this is how worshipping at the foot of the man works. <laughs> the man. At the man. The white man, in this case. Why are we still putting the onus, after all this, on Kaepernick to prove and prove and prove himself? When, in fact, this whole situation has laid bare that there is no good faith effort being put forward by the NFL to quote-unquote, rectify this situation. And instead, we're left with distractions. Kaepernick has proven that he can still throw a football good enough to at least be a backup on any number of struggling, budget-ass teams right now. There's so many teams. Tom Brady could break his foot next week. I'm sorry to your family, (laughs) who are big Patriots fans. Uh, I don't know who their backup is right now. I don't know. But I'm sure he could use some, some insurance. So many teams could use the insurance of... A player who's led their team to a Super Bowl, like that is uh, that is to not fair, nothing. To be fair, Bill Belichick does not like distractions. He doesn't. He's had players murder people. Oh my, literally, my stars. He's had. <laughs> he's not going back. He's had quite the scandal or two. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry. You have to, to go my home. Family. <laughs> you have to go home to Thanksgiving next week. Well, you know what? I didn't say anything that was a lie. It doesn't rise to the level of slander. Not even close. It was true. <laughs> Have you inflated the tires in the car lately? Girl, We're going to be up. on the road next week. I can't stand you. Uh, so uh, you, you no, asked... My, my point is, we need to shift this narrative from putting everything all on him to putting it on the NFL now. We, What are they doing and not doing? Let's not talk about the Kunta Kinta shirt. Let's not talk about what Colin Kaepernick is doing to get back in the NFL. The man has principles. He's sticking to them. Like, he is... Does anybody have any doubt at this point that Colin Kaepernick wants to be in the NFL? He could step and fetch it. He could bow down to Massa. He could do whatever he 
could possibly do in opposition to his personal principles to get back on a football field. But he has shown that he's willing to preserve that and also still work meticulously and what, five, six days a week, keeping his body in shape, waiting for this moment that may or may not happen. Like he's not willing to sacrifice one for the other. Right. And it truly is a remarkable thing to watch. Like how he came out of this situation, handling it with such deft precision while still maintaining his moral authority and being true to himself is, it's a goddamn inspiration to me. Like mm-hmm. I am floored. It's not easy to go up against the NFL in this kind of situation and, and win. Right. Or at least uh, maintain the moral high ground. Because they laid all kinds of booby traps for him. Oh, of course. Yeah. Dangling this thing that he wants. Because the best the best thing for the NFL is for Kaepernick to be seen as selling out. Mm. The, the, like, that's the best case scenario. And for um, folks who think that he's been grandstanding this whole time, and he's just happy to out here collect his welfare check. But, like, for right? what? For what? Collecting all these unearned monies from being this grandstanding protester. Like, being an activist doesn't really pay that well. Uh, sure, he got that Nike deal, but, like, he's... He's given up his career. I mean, he also sued the NFL and won like a right, somewhat not, sizable amount of money. Not what he would make from playing. Not even close. We don't know the exact amount, but potentially you're right in that situation. Mm. My point is, he has now shown us that he still absolutely wants to play. You do not show up on this football field on such short notice, agree to these terms, and present yourself in such great physical shape, and throw the ball that well. If your goal isn't still to be a professional football player, that takes a lot of work and dedication this far out from the last time you played to still be in that kind of shape. Mm-hmm. To me, um, kind of a something else going on here that's interesting to me personally is the the commentators who work for networks who carry the NFL games, who have a, a vested interest in parroting NFL talking points. Mm. A lot of the... Uh, you know, the Stephen A. Smiths of the world. Jason Whitlock. Uh, Tiki Barber. Jason, oh my God. Jason Whitlock, one of the most repugnant human beings that I can think of. Who mm. somehow, somehow still has a job in sports after torpedoing the undefeated, which at one time was touted as the Black Grantland, which has survived uh, in spite of him. And... Uh, the, and just writing the, one of the most misogynistic, sexist pieces of sport writing drivel. Yes, about Serena against Williams. Serena Williams. And wrong. Yeah. And what's delicious about it is because it was so wrong, because it was premised on such a misunderstanding of tennis. Just the, the parade of assholes and lunatics that they have trotted out to discredit Colin Kaepernick's character is what? Like, Rex Ryan? Asshole. Stephen A. Smith? Come on. Tiki Barber slept with the babysitter, the mariner. I mean, like, wh- who are these people? Who thought th- thought this through? These, I'm just saying, like... Not for nothing, these are <laughs> black men who will throw their own under the bus to further their own careers. They won't even think twice right. about it. I'm just saying, like, at at its base, the the message of Colin Kaepernick is not a radical message. He said black lives matter. And people got upset. He knelt, he knelt during the anthem. During the anthem, people felt it was disrespectful to veterans, which personally, I feel like 
it requires a bit of a logical leap and I understand if you disagree with me there, but the premise of his political action is actually not, not outrageous. It's not a stretch. It's that black people are disproportionately disadvantaged by the United States justice system, by the way we police people. And that is an idea that's becoming far more accepted in... In, in centrist in, democratic circles, Exactly. Right? Like, this like, is taken to be now, but he's still out here being made the scapegoat. Right. Kneeling during the anthem. Maybe this is because I'm Jamaican, mm. but I don't get why it's such a big deal. And also, from a, a political perspective, can we question the sporting industrial military complex that is so enmeshed in all of American professional sports. Why are especially, we why are we especially football. why are we tying football to the military as something that is so unbreakable? Why is that there in the first place? Why before every not even just important sporting event, we were just at the Raptors game last night and we had to stand through with all our uh concessions in hand. <laughs> both the American and the Canadian National Anthem for the fucking Toronto Raptors playing the Charlotte Hornets. Who, what? What? Like, this is not the start of the U.S. Open final, which I still find repugnant. I just don't get it. That's something I've never understood. I was in school, in college, and one of the things that w- was taught during our our sports sociology class was this whole business of of the intertwining of of sport and and military in America. And before one of the college football games, one of the bowl games in the early 90s, must have been like 1991, George Bush comes on and addresses the nation. This is college football here. Mm-hmm. Like this is wild to me. I grew up in the state so I get it. To you it's a it was a foreign experience when it when you went through it. I just can't believe that people like Rex Ryan are calling Kaepernick a, a distraction when we got people like beating on their wives, beating mis- on their girlfriends. Isn't that Mr. Foot Fetish? We get, I don't know. Oh Rex Ryan? Oh God, I, just stop. He was the Bills coach at one point who was like and wrapped up Jets in all that. And, yeah, yeah whatever. But the point is the NFL has like some massive problems. Yeah, uh, domestic abuse. Traumatic brain injury. You got people killing people. Like, the fact that Kaepernick is the number one distraction that you all can point to, something is wrong here. And it speaks uh, to, to me, a lack of independent thinking among people who are paid to commentate on the NFL. So, we normally cover tennis. That was our NFL. I think that is our first NFL segment ever. Um, We were at the Raptors game last night, which was fun. They beat the Charlotte Hornets by like 30-something points. I was so my, bored. My husband, Norman Powell, was in double Who? digits. Who? Ex- excuse me. Holder of an NBA championship ring. Thank mm-hmm. you very much, Norman Powell. The most handsome man in the NBA. Is, uh, is fulfilling his role with Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka on the injury list. I've never Norm seen is somebody doing more capable around the rim. He finishes at the rim so well. Stop. Um, I was listening to The Read today because they drop on Tuesday now. And they talked about a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. They did talk about Kaepernick. They talked about, okay, so Lizzo is being sued by an Uber, no, sorry, a Postmates driver. We don't have Postmates in Canada, but it's like Uber Eats. Mm. Uh, This 
driver was accused publicly by Lizzo of stealing her food. Apparently she was like circling a building, whatever, couldn't get in touch with Lizzo. And so Lizzo tweeted that Tiffany from Postmates stole my food. And Lizzo is a, a famous person who mm-hmm. has millions of followers. And people just went in on poor Tiffany. So we don't know. We don't know. Like if Tiffany stole the food, if she couldn't get in touch with Lizzo, if Postmates... Because apparently Postmates can tell their drivers, like, if you can't get in touch within a few minutes, you got to go. Yeah. You got to go to the One next One of the play. funniest things I've ever seen on social media was when that story happened. Because that's a little while ago. Yeah, happened yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Was when somebody tweeted, imagine that Lizzo out here stealing people's lyrics. And now she <laughs> out here hungry. <laughs> so, recently, Tiffany channeled Crystal LaBeja and said, I will sue the bitch. And she did. Good. Tiffany is suing the uh, the UK rapper who wrote the uh, the lyric, I just took a DNA test and I'm 100% that bitch, out I'm the, yeah. has been giving a songwriting credit on Truth Hurts. Oh, really? Yes. Flexing that Candy Burris bullshit. Candy Burris, who got a songwriting credit Ed on Ed Sheeran's Shape View because he, uh, what do they call it, interpolated No Scrubs. <laughs> No, they do. They call it No, I understand. I'm just yeah. saying. <laughs> but uh, Lizzo, you know, you get famous and more money, more problems. But she's also been doing way too much mm-hmm. lately. But I think she's in danger of careening off of a cliff where <laughs> I will not be willing to care about what she does anymore. Something that I want to talk about, and is this is not the right time for it, but we will cover this eventually. Power and proportionality on Twitter. When people get famous, they don't realize that they have uh, a measure of power, right? And they have the ability to unleash uh, a slew of supporters and really like ruin someone's life or, or make that person feel unsafe. So you said you weren't going to talk about no, it. No, we weren't. Now you're talking but about we, it. But we've got to talk about it. We've got to talk about it at some point. Sure, at some point. Now is not the time. Now is the time where we tell folks that we're going to be doing a soft launch of our GoFundMe this week mm-hmm. on Facebook. So, you know, look out for that. If you follow the body serve on Facebook, you'll find it there. Failing which, it will be launched in earnest, made public to everybody with our final two episodes of the season. First with our WTA rap episode and also with our ATP rap episode. We realize y'all are very busy, have lots of expenses through the end of the year. People are broke in January. If you're compelled to, to give, you'll have until the end of the Australian Open to do so. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We've, we've been on a prolific stretch lately. We're just trying to power through to the end of the year, and we appreciate you tagging along. I am James. I'm at ElliotJMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. You can find the Body Surf podcast on Instagram at the Body Serve. We are on Spotify. We're on Twitter at the Body Serve. Apparently iTunes, etc. Apparently something that's come to our attention. If you want to find us on Spotify, if you if you just put in the Body Serve, it's hard to find. Mm. If you put in the Body Serve Tennis Podcast, you'll find us for sure. Okay. Thank you for that. Reviews, please. Give us those. Talk to you next week. Till next time. Okay, we move to Spanish because that's bullshit. (laughs) Thank you very much.